You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. You'll remember if you were with us last week that we looked at the last three verses of uh, chapter 2 last week, which were kind of a summary passage to catch us up to speed on where we've been the first two chapters of our study in Exodus. And we really focused in on the idea of God reminding us through the text that he, uh, he hears the cries of his people, he remembers the promises that he's made to his people, he sees our predicaments, and he responds, and he knows how to respond when the timing is right. And so uh, we understand from the end of chapter 2 that God sees Israel, he hears Israel, he knows that they're in slavery, he knows they're in bondage, and he knows exactly what to do about it. And when the timing is right, and the timing has come now in chapter 3, where he plans to work and move and act on their behalf. And so we talked about how Israel could have been tempted to find hope in the political change that was taking place at that time, right? That the Pharaoh had died, a new Pharaoh was coming to power. Maybe this would be an opportunity to get out from underneath the slavery, New political change, political leaders in place. Maybe there'll be a change in their condition, and yet we know that this Pharaoh would have grown up only knowing Israel as slaves. Why would he release them? Why would he let them go? Um, And they continue to endure the same type of predicament. Challenged us to see that when political change happens around us, we don't hope or despair in that ultimately, right? Like we do our part as citizens, we vote responsibly, but we don't take hope in that. We don't believe that our ultimate hope comes from uh, earthly leaders. We don't despair in earthly leaders being in charge either. Uh, That ultimately we see God as being sovereign and in control, right? Um, Challenged you that instead we find our hope through prayer, and we talked about how we can pray and groan to God even. And then we find that assurance in the New Testament that the Holy Spirit groans on our behalf as well. So even as we pray, we may not fully know and understand what we even need ourselves, but the Holy Spirit does. And so not only does Jesus serve as an advocate before the Father who uh, petitions on our behalf and stands with the shed blood of his own sacrifice being the condition that God would even listen to us and answer us, the Holy Spirit is praying on our behalf. He's groaning on our behalf for what we need. And so challenged you last week as a point of application to let the predicaments of Exodus speak to your life today uh, in the ways that we see God being sovereign over the situation of his people then. He's sovereign over our situations today. And to also let the delays of God in Exodus bring hope and encouragement to you that uh, he will show himself to be true, just like he does in Exodus. He will show himself to be faithful, uh, and that will come into view in the right time. So that brings us to Exodus chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there, uh, and we'll start reading in verse 1. It says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. 
I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Our summary sentence for today, God reveals himself as holy, meaning he is infinitely separate from us, yet he also reveals himself as compassionate, meaning he is eternally connected to us, making it our responsibility to both obey and trust him always. God reveals himself as both holy and compassionate. There's a holy piece to how he presents himself to Moses. This holiness that communicates uh, his difference Uh, The fact that he's the creator and Moses is the created, that there's a difference there. And there's a holy separation that needs to take place there. Uh, But there's also a compassionate aspect of how God reveals himself. That he reveals himself as one who has heard the cries of Israel. Up to this point, we've been reading chapter 1 and 2. We know that God is hearing it, but the people at the time don't know. There's no indication to them that that they have been heard by God. And so this is God in real time communicating to Moses, who will be the spokesperson to the rest of the people. I've heard their cries. I've heard their groans. And I'm ready to respond. And so there's a holiness and a compassionate aspect of God's revelation here in chapter 3. And uh, because he's different from us, because he's holy and separated, there's a call to be obedient to this God. Because he's compassionate and caring, there's an assurance that we can trust this God as well. For our kids, because God is holy, we obey him. And because God is caring, we trust him. Because God is holy, we obey him. Because God is caring, we trust him. You'll note here in this passage that God initiates his relationship with Moses. And for all we know, this is the first time that, that God and Moses have ever interacted. I mean, that would, be the, that would seem to be the indication here from the passage that up to this point, Moses has heard about God, most likely from his father and his mother during those early years when he was raised before he was sent to the palace at Egypt. Uh, so he's known about this God, but now God is directly communicating to him. And he's establishing this relationship by communicating who he is what his plan is, and how Moses will fit into that very plan. Now look at the setting here for this passage. We're told that Moses is shepherding and he brings his flocks close to Mount Horeb, which is known as the mountain of God, most likely known as the mountain of God after the fact. Now it may be that it had special meaning at that very time as Moses gets ready to go and observe this burning bush, but it's probably more so that Moses is looking from the future when he's actually writing Exodus calling it the mountain of God because that's what it would be understood as by that time. Because one, he shows up here and shows himself to to Moses through the burning bush. This is also the very mountain that God will lead the people to where the the Ten Commandments will be given. So this mountain holds uh, special significance for the people of Israel. It becomes known as the mountain of God. Uh, And and it's also uh, referred to as Mount Sinai in other passages. Acts chapter 7 verse 30 actually calls it Mount Sinai where God uh, appears as the burning bush. So Horeb and Sinai can be used interchangeably here. Um, it's, the, um, it's the important piece to see that it's the mountain of God where God is revealing himself to his people. Now, again, the setting piece, 40 years have passed since Moses fled Egypt and uh, attempted to lead Israel out, was rejected by them because of the murder of the Egyptian. 40 years have passed now since he's been shepherding 
uh, Jethro, his father-in-law's flocks, right? It's a long time. It's a long time where Moses has been kind of working and, and doing the mundane things of life. Um, no communication from God, no communication with the people of Israel during this time. More than likely, Moses is just sitting and working and pondering what could have been potentially, right? And then also wondering, who is God going to use to deliver these people? We see here at the beginning of the passage that God leads Moses intentionally to this mountain, a mountain that will become special. Um, It's uh, God drawing Moses here in order to reveal himself, and he uses this burning bush that's not consumed by fire, we're told. Um, and there's, there's some speculation as to what's going on here. Some commentators try to downplay what's actually happening here and try to take something that would be miraculous and make it more natural. Um, at, at, at that area, there, there are a lot of trees and bushes that would undergo similar seasonal changes as we're going through right now. Some commentators say that Moses would have looked up and with the sun setting would have observed uh, a bush or, or a tree-like structure that with the, the leaves changing into orange and, and reds would have maybe thought like, man, that, that looks like it's on fire. Maybe you've uh, ever seen a, a bush or a tree that you would say during the fall season, man, it looks like that, that structure is on fire. It's so red or it's so orange. We have a tree right out behind us that you can turn around and look at that's, that's changed leaves and it's red. There's another one over here to the side too that's orange and red. There's one at the hunting property that I go to, when you pull out, it's bright orange. I mean, it's just beautiful. Uh, And you might would say, hey, it looks like it's on fire. Um, I think something miraculous is happening here, right? Because I don't know too many men that would be down in a valley that would look up on a mountain and say, hey, what a beautiful tree during fall season. I'm going to go up there and look at that, right? Maybe they would want to take that hike all the way up to the mountain to see it. I prefer to just kind of look at it from a distance and say, hey, that's beautiful. Something happens to Moses here where he says, I've got to go check that out. I've got to go look at that. There's something happening there. That thing's on fire, and yet it's not burning up. Moses approaches the fire, and this is God revealing his presence in a miraculous way. Fire represents God's holy presence. Um, It draws us. Fire draws us, right? You go out into uh, somebody's backyard where they have a fire going, and it doesn't take long for people to start congregating around that fire, right? Uh, specifically in darkness, light draws us to it. But fire also communicates some warning signs to us as well, right? That you can come and enjoy the fire, but you don't want to get too close to it. Um, Even our our younger kids, while we have to prompt and remind, there's still a quick understanding that the heat coming from that fire, that's not a place I want to get too close to, right? And we kind of see that playing out here in this passage as well. God calls Moses draws him to this burning bush, but then communicates distance needs to be maintained, that this fire is not meant to be played with, that it's attractive, but it demands a healthy distance. We see some characters here in this passage as well, one being Moses, Jethro's shepherd, who will now become God's shepherd. Think about how God uses that concept of shepherd amongst his leaders. We'll see David later who kind of went through a similar preparation period of being a shepherd for his dad. Then God calls him to be his king shepherd for Israel. We'd see Jesus who, while was not a shepherd specifically by occupation, still using that terminology to talk about himself being the good shepherd, uh, the one who leads us, as Psalm 23 talks about, to green pastures. And so the shepherd concept is important to God. Um, he uses Moses in the 40 years that he's experienced as a shepherd to prepare him 
for the task that's coming. We also see another character here um, that is, you know, who we understand to be God. But if you're not reading the passage and maybe just recounting the story, you miss what's told to us in verse 2. And it's the angel of the Lord who appears in the flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and yet it was not consumed. And so Moses goes to the bush. And when he gets there, verse 4, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And so you have some overlap here where we're first told that the angel of the Lord is appearing to Moses through this bush. And now we have God speaking from the bush. And so what's going on here? What, what is this angel of the Lord figure and how should he be understood? Well, the term angel in its uh, most basic definition sense means messenger. It's a messenger who speaks. But this messenger is speaking not just for God, he's speaking as God, right? Most commentators would say that this is a Christophany, which means a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. This is Jesus speaking to Moses here. Because we see one who is identified as being identical, identical to God, but yet also uh, different than, than the Father as well, right? And that's the, the confusing, mysterious part of the Trinity where we have Father, Son, and Spirit. They're, they're, equal, with, they're equal as God, right? Uh, but then there's distinct personhood that's enjoyed by the Trinity as well, right? We have Jesus as our advocate, the Holy Spirit who's groaning on our behalf. The Holy Spirit didn't die on the cross for us, right? God the Father didn't die on the cross for us, um, we don't want to confuse the roles of the Trinity, right? But here, the angel of the Lord seems to be uh, the, the triune God communicating through uh, the personhood of Jesus before he comes uh, in the New Testament. This is the setting, the mountain of God. Moses, who's defeated and, and has attempted to do things under his own power and failed, and now God is resurrecting him uh, to be useful once again, and he's doing that through the communication of this burning bush. Let's jump into our notes today. Number one, understand your identity from God. We need to first understand our identity from God. As God initiates this communication and conversation with Moses, he reminds Moses and establishes a clear understanding of the identity that Moses has. Look what he says um, in verse six. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, some interpretations would pluralize the, the word father, and so it would be, I'm the God of your fathers. Who specifically? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But it's certainly true that he's also the God of his earthly immediate father, Amram, right? I am that God is what God is communicating here. Number one, God reveals himself as the God of the patriarchs. He reveals himself as the God of the patriarchs, meaning he's not a new, previously unknown deity who has now shown up. God wants to make sure that Moses understands this is a further revealing of a God who is already known. Now, we take this for granted because we have grown up, obviously thousands of years later, we've grown up in a setting where we've always had access to the Bible. We've always had access to it, access to it in a language we understand. But we need to look at passages like this and be grateful and thankful that God chose to reveal himself because the Bible is God's progressive revelation. There are things that we know about God today that people of old didn't always understand and know, right? The Old Testament, the people, the saints of the Old Testament are pictured as people who didn't fully understand the mysteries of the gospel, didn't fully understand the mysteries of the Messiah who was to come. We live in a day and age where we do. 
right? But that doesn't minimize the importance of a passage like Exodus 3. There are things that are communicated in Exodus chapter 3 and following in this book that had God chosen not to, we would not know these things, right? That's the difference between general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is what the Bible says can be known about God through nature, through creation. It can be known by everybody. Whether you've ever heard the name of Jesus or not, there are things that you can know about God. Romans 1 talks about this, his eternal nature, his divine power. We can look around and see that there's something greater than us that put all of this here. But there's specific things about God we can't know unless he tells us. And he tells Moses certain things about his compassionate heart, his desire to hear his people and respond to his people. These are things that we should be grateful for, that God reveals these type of things to us. He's not a new God. He's the same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which means he's the faithful God of unfaithful people. He's the faithful God of unfaithful people. Most of you have a good enough knowledge and understanding. Some of you were here when we went through the book of Genesis, and we talked about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But when you hear God, when you read a passage like this, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it should conjure stories in your mind of who these people were and how God was faithful to them. And it doesn't take long for you to think about some of these stories to realize they were unfaithful to him a lot of the time, right? You have a faithful God to unfaithful people. We need that type of God because that's who we are. We're oftentimes unfaithful people. We need a faithful God to unfaithful people. So when God says, I'm a God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, we take hope and comfort in that. We take hope and comfort in this type of God. He's a covenant-keeping God. He's a relational God who remains the God of these patriarchs today. Notice the tense that's used here. Notice what he says. He doesn't say, I was the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He says, I am. Why is that important? Well, Jesus draws upon the importance in Mark chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn over to Mark chapter 12 if you want to, or just make a note of it. Super important though. How does Exodus 3 speak to us today? Well, look what he says in Mark chapter 12, verse 26. Jesus is having a a debate and a dispute with the Sadducees. Pharisees, we talk about most more commonly than the Sadducees, but the Sadducees show up in the Gospels as well. Uh, The big difference between Pharisees and Sadducees, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. Not the resurrection of Jesus, but the resurrection in general. They they didn't hope in, in bodies and humans coming back to life. There was no hope of resurrection. And so the Sadducees are challenging Jesus about his understanding and teachings of the resurrection. And look what Jesus says. In Mark Mark chapter 12, verse 26. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus says, you're quite wrong. What are they wrong about? They're wrong about the resurrection. He says, If there was no resurrection, if you die and you're done and that's it, then God would have communicated to Moses, I was the God of these people. But Jesus draws in, and this is why it's so important to believe that the Bible is not inspired by thought or theme. It's inspired word for word. 
Like every word particularly chosen by God through the Holy Spirit as human beings wrote it down. It's a big, miraculous, mysterious way that he communicates, but he does it through human beings. He uses the personalities, meaning you can read Paul and you can read Luke and you can see similarities, but also dissimilarities where where they're different human authors with different personalities writing and yet each word chosen specifically by God. God using specific words to communicate to Moses here that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Just stop to think about that for a second. That Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still living. Their souls still live in heaven with Jesus today. Forty years, hundreds of years, thousands of years later, right? They're still, they're still living with Jesus. They're still waiting for the resurrection. They're still waiting for some of these promises to be ultimately fulfilled. God tells Moses, I am the God of your forefathers. He's a covenant-keeping, relational God who remains the God of those patriarchs today. Number two, God includes Moses in that community of care. You say, great, that's awesome. He was the God of these people. He is the God of these people, excuse me. What does that matter? What does that mean, right? Well, it's significant because, because God is attaching Moses to this community, right? He, he's, he's revealing himself. This, this would not matter if Moses wasn't a descendant of these people, right? There, there's a connection here that, that God wants to make. Hey, I am the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, you are a part of this community, He makes the names of old relevant to Moses in a personal way. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that God that you've heard about is this God right now who is now your God. That's what what God is telling Moses. That God is this God who's talking to you, and I'm now your God. He's still the same God today who calls people to the unknown. And he called Abraham and said, just come follow me. I'm not going to tell you specifically where we're going. Come follow me. Some of you feel like that's been your Christian journey. You said yes to Jesus, and he's taken you places that you never thought you'd ever go. He still is the God who calls us to the unknown. He's still the God who overcomes impossible odds to keep promises. All of us have experienced that on some level, where God has overcome impossible odds to show his goodness to us time and time again. He's also the God who continues to pardon failures. Because as we said, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're full of failures. They're full of unfaithfulness to him. God overcomes that unfaithfulness to work in and through them. He's still that God. Now, why does that matter to us? Because the implication is that God remains the same God who is committed to the same community that as a believer I belong to now as well. Now, Moses had the physical descent piece. He was Israel in regards to being a descendant of Abraham. But Galatians chapter 3 verse 29 tells us that as Gentiles, if we have faith in Christ, we are now the offspring of Abraham. Right? There's a lot of disagreement amongst Christians about how the church and Israel function together. Do they remain distinctly separate? Are they one now? Um, And you guys have heard me teach on this enough that through Galatians, it's hard for me to see a distinctness between the two because it seems that the New Testament works to show us the, the unity and the oneness. We saw this in our study in Ephesians, right? That if you have faith in Christ, you are an offspring of Abraham. So when we read this and we see he is the God 
of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No, that's not our physical fathers. But they are our spiritual fathers. And what God did for them, he does for us if we're truly believers today. Whether we come from from Abraham or not, whether we're a Jew or not, God works and moves this way for his people. He's the same God committed to the same community. And if we're believers, we're part of that community. While we're studying Exodus, right? Their history is our history. We, we enjoy this God. If God were to speak to us today, he would have every right to say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and for that to have meaning to us. Not for us to say, well, well that doesn't matter because I'm not, I'm not Jewish. No, it does matter because you are an offspring of Abraham according to Galatians 3. You enjoy this community that God has committed himself to. Understand that identity. Number two, understand your place value with God. Understand your place value with God. We get our value from God. And we need to see that through the ways that he reveals himself to Moses. Number one, God reveals himself as the transcendent, holy God. What's that word transcendent mean? Well, it carries the idea of his uh, aboveness, his, his difference from us. When we talk about him being transcendent, we're talking about him being separated from us, being different from us. Um, <clears throat> his holiness communicates that, right? Holiness meaning that he is perfect, he's without sin, but his holiness carries more to it than just that, right? He's different from us. He's unlike anything else in this world. He's created everything else. He is the all-sufficient creator, which makes him distinctly different. He reveals himself in that way. As Moses tries to approach the burning bush, God calls out to him and he says, uh, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now Moses as a prince of Egypt would have been in the presence of some really revered people probably. He certainly would have been in the throne room of Pharaoh. He may have gone and interacted with other nations through trading and, and through business. He, he probably came into the presence of people who were greater than him before. But this trumps everything. This, this is the greatest being that he's ever been before, right? And God says, take your shoes off. You're standing on holy ground. Now, he may have removed his shoes in other settings because at that time it would have been a, a sign of respect. But he never would have been able to remove them on the basis of standing on holy ground, right? God says, take your shoes off. You are on holy ground. This burning bush, it's not consumed. It communicates God's mysterious, miraculous, never-ending power, right? The fact that this fire can burn and find fuel outside of the, the bush, right? A fire finds fuel from the wood that burns and is consumed, and yet here God is all-sufficient. He doesn't need the, the bush to burn himself. He has all-sufficient fuel. There's an otherness to God that we can never forget here. The removal of the sandals communicated an expectation of respect and reverence. It also communicates without saying it that Moses has a lack of holiness, right? A lack of holiness. Now here's where we are tempted in our culture uh, to try to um, level the playing field, right? We want to exaggerate our holiness. This is where most religions fall, where we want to, we want to build up our, our goodness, right? And we do that by comparing ourselves to others because we look the best by comparing ourselves to others, not to the true standard, God and his holiness, but by comparing ourselves to others, right? So we exaggerate our goodness oftentimes by comparing ourselves, or we try to reduce his holiness 
to make ourselves acceptable, right? So we'll read things in scripture, we'll read his standards, we'll read his commands, and we'll try to, to reinterpret and manipulate and make those less severe than what they really are to, again, make ourselves more good. What's communicated to Moses here is that we are different, right? You, you keep your distance. You stay there, you take your shoes off. This is holy ground that you're standing upon. We're not holy ourselves, but the assurance in the New Testament is that God works to make us holy through Christ so we can enjoy him fully forever, right? Ephesians 1.4, we'll read a couple of these real quick. Ephesians 1.4 says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 1 Corinthians 1.30. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And we can be grateful and thankful that Moses having to take his shoes off. He's standing on holy ground. There's a, there's a fear factor here of I can't approach God any further. This continues even as you see the tabernacle and the temple built where, where God is closed off to average man, right? Only the priest being able to access and only by, by God's grace can that priest access. But it's after Christ dies, after Christ is raised, that, that we see that radically transformed, right? When that sacrifice is accepted on the cross, the, the, the barrier is torn, Now the New Testament talks about, in Hebrews chapter 10, a different perspective that we have in coming to God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. God's still holy, right? We still come before him standing on holy ground, but there's, there's a change in the relationship now. Because of Jesus' blood, we can draw near. We can come confidently before him. We don't have to fear him in the same way. Christ has made it possible for us to be presented as holy before him. God reveals himself as a transcendent, holy God, and an above God over us. But number two, God reveals himself as the imminent caring God. His transcendence means his aboveness. His imminence means his amongness. He's among us, meaning that he is separated from us because he's distinctly different from us, and yet he chooses to connect with us. He chooses to, to actively be amongst us. That's what his eminence means. He's a caring God. He's connected to us in his compassion. Now, I told you earlier, we know that God cares. We know that God is listening to the Israelites, but they don't know at this point, right? The people of Israel are wondering if God cares. They're, they're crying, they're praying, they're groaning, but they don't see any change. Does God care? I told you that Moses was probably wondering this as well. Maybe he even feels like he cared more for Israel than this God that he had heard about, right? I thought the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob cared. He obviously doesn't. I had to take things in my own hands, try to save Israel. That didn't work, but at least I cared. 
I don't think this God cares. Maybe he had those thoughts on those lonely nights when he was taking care of sheep in the wilderness. Here, God steps in, though, and communicates the compassion and care that he has. He is a relational God as much as he is a sovereign God. We said that last week. He communicates who he is, right? I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Take your shoes off, I'm holy. But then he communicates uh, not only who he is, but how he feels. Look what verse 7 says. Then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. I've come down to save them. God's care is much greater for Israel than anything Moses had felt or experienced. Think about how Moses expressed his care, right? He sees the the suffering, and what does he do? He immediately reacts without thinking right? He steps in, he tries to separate, it results in death, which results in a backlash that he wasn't expecting where the Israelites reject him and he has to run and flee, right? Yes, Moses cared, but it was a, uh, an unhinged caredness in the sense that like it wasn't calculated, it wasn't thought out. What we see here is God caring, but also God planning. <clears throat> it's why his care is greater than Moses' because he's planned how he is going to save He's connected to them in his compassion. God initiates what we can refer to as an Advent season even here because he says, I have come down. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. That's what we celebrate during this Christmas season, right? That Advent season, Christ's first Advent, the first coming of Jesus. It's Jesus coming down to save his people. We long for the second advent when Jesus comes to rule and reign forever, right? But this is an advent-type season here where, where God says, I've come down to save my people. The implication, as we think about how God has revealed himself to Moses, my understanding of God must be shaped by how he reveals himself and must shape how I understand myself going forward. Think about that for a second. My understanding of God, who God is, how I understand him to be, those thoughts, those feelings, those beliefs, they have to flow from how God has chosen to reveal himself. And it's the ways that he reveals himself that shape how I understand myself going forward. God tells us what he is like. We don't get to determine it. But we've all talked with people, we've all heard people make comments like, I don't think God is like that. The, the God that I worship and serve doesn't do that. Right? We, we hear people make those type of statements and think about how, how um, presumptuous that is. Right? God hasn't left us in the dark. We don't have to wonder what he's like. We don't have to sit around and speculate and say, do we think God is like this? Do we think God does this? He tells us. He tells us what he's like. We, we may not always like it in our, in our sinfulness, Right? It's why people, people say these type of things because they're typically attacking his, his, uh, his holiness and his judgment. Right? Like, like I, I, I can't follow a God or I don't believe God would send people to hell. Right? Um, they attack his sovereignty, which, is, which, is, which baffles me to no end that people want to strip God of him being in control right? Like, because they can't handle a God being in control and not stopping evil immediately, 
right? Because that's where it comes from, right? Like, I can't believe that God is really fully always in control and that he knows everything and and determines everything because that means he's allowing evil to happen. And I I don't want that, that type of God. So their alternative is a God who isn't in control, as though that brings some type of hope and, and assurance, right? Like to me, that's the, worst, that's the worst possible conclusion that God's not in control. I may not always understand what he's doing in his control, but I certainly want him to always be in control. I don't, I don't want to strip that from him. And God reveals himself in that way, that he's always in control. People also want to strip God of his, his sexual standards, right? Like it's his judgment, it's his sovereignty, and it's his standards for living, right? They want to reinterpret that. Hey, God, would, God wouldn't withhold me from loving who I love, whether that's outside of marriage, inside of marriage, or with somebody that I'm not supposed to be with. We want to strip him of that. I don't think God would be that way. We, we make statements like that because we want to change who God is. God, God revealed himself in a certain way. He tells us who he is in Exodus chapter 3. He's a holy God. He's a compassionate God. He's a God we obey. He's a God we trust. Number three, we need to understand our role for God. We need to understand our role for God. God tells Moses, I have heard my people. I've come down to save them. He goes on in verse 8, to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place that's occupied. It's full of other people. Verse 9, and now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I'll send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. This is a sign of great leadership. God has a clear understanding of the situation and a clear plan of response. Here's what's tough is when you have leaders who don't have a clear understanding of the situation or don't have a clear plan of response. Good leaders know the situation, they've assessed the situation, and they have a great plan in response to the situation. That's God. That's God here. He says, here's the situation, Moses. I'm fully aware of it. Notice that Moses doesn't have to bring the situation to God. God's informing Moses of the situation, and he's telling him, I've already got a plan for how we're going to deal with it. Number one, God reveals that he is working to not only save us from, but to save us to. He's working to not only save us from, but to save us to. His motive, he is moved with compassion to act for his people based on his intimate knowledge of their situation. He hears them, he sees them. That's his motive. He's he's motivated out of compassion. Number two, though, his purpose, he desires to save them from their slavery and to a life of worship. He's going to save them from Egypt to a place flowing with milk and honey. The fact that the land is occupied also implies that he he plans to give them further deliverance and provision beyond Egypt. Don't miss that. He's going to save them from Egypt. But he's also going to save them from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, because those people aren't going to let you come in and live there. They're going to have to be expelled from the land. He says, I'm bringing you to the land. Man, it's important to see that, that what he's doing in Egypt sets the stage for their ongoing trust of him, right? Trust me in Egypt, keep trusting me moving forward. He's motivated, he's motivated out of compassion. His purpose is to save him from Egypt to this other land. His plan, God develops the mission and chooses to include a flawed human agent to carry it out for him. He says, Moses, in verse 10, come, I'll send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people out. 
I mean, God could have done this with, it, with, it, with, his, with his words. He could have snapped his finger and, and it could have all been done. But he says, no, we're going to do this in a special way that includes you, Moses, an imperfect, unholy individual. You're going to get to be a part of this plan. You're going to get to make me look good as you bring my people out. God reveals that he's working to not only save us from, but to save us too. Number two, God reveals his expectation for us to bring others along into that salvation. He's saving us, and he expects us to bring others into that too. He's not just going to save Moses. He wants to save all the people, and Moses is going to be a part. He's going to be a tool that he uses to do it. There's a problem here, and Moses is going to be part of the solution. Moses may have felt preparation in the first 40 years, but think about the last 40 years. Maybe, maybe he's in Egypt. He's got this desire to lead Israel out, and he's in Egypt. He's growing. He's learning. He's learning to read and to write, things he probably wouldn't have learned as a slave. And he's probably thinking, hey, God's preparing me to do this. All this makes sense. This feels right. As soon as the time's right, like I'm going to lead Israel out. Probably the last 40 years, he hasn't seen that as, a, as much of a preparation, right? He sees himself as a failure, maybe a cast off. He's been forgotten. But God is just as much preparing him in the last 40 years as he was the first 40. I mean, it's a helpful reminder to us that remember that God is always preparing and using the time in our life for how he wants to use us. It's a reminder to us to be faithful in the little things, to be entrusted with much. We saw that throughout the parable teachings right before we got into Exodus, right? People who were faithful in the little, God entrusted them with much. He was faithful as a shepherd for 40 years. God entrusts him now with his people to lead them out of Egypt. God's always preparing and using time. There's a guy who um, comes and speaks at our school frequently. Um, He's part of uh, ACSI, which is um, an accreditation uh, company. And uh, one thing that he always highlights every time I hear him speak is how much purpose there is in the daily plotting of life. The daily plotting of life, like the, the regular, the mundane, the things that we do every day, right? The washing of dishes, the doing of laundry, the going to work, the, the back and forth, like the things that aren't unique or special, but just the things that happen constantly. He says, that's when we honor God best. In the daily plotting of life, the things that he's entrusted to us, the things that he's called us to, we do those things faithfully. That's the bulk of our life, right? The bulk of Moses' life. We're about to see uh, in the next, um, however many chapters there are in Exodus, from three till the end. That, that, that's like a year and a half, maybe two years of time. 80 years have already passed, and we know very little of what happened during the, the bulk of his life, Right? We, we, when we think of Moses, we think burning bush, we think Red Sea, we think plagues. And I mean, those are like three days of his life, right? What was he doing the rest of his life? Taking care of sheep, right? Plodding along. But that's what faithfulness looks like. That's what faithfulness for us looks like too. Some of you are in a plodding type season of life where, where you haven't had a burning bush or a Red Sea or a plague type of situation recently where God really showed up and did something great and amazing in your life. It's just been plotting for some years. Man, don't stop being faithful during the plotting. God uses that time to prepare us for something next. Whatever God calls us to, we can trust he's prepared us to do it. He tells Moses, we're about to go do this. Because Moses is exactly who he needs to be for the task. Think about Ephesians 2.10. We're prepared for good works, right? We're prepared for good works. God prepares us for those good works. Now, next week, we're going to talk about 
We've already seen how God is sovereign in our chaos. God is sovereign in our choices. Next week, we're going to see how God is sovereign in our complacency because Moses is certainly complacent in his response. But the implication here, I am to be an active participant rather than a passive bystander when it comes to the work that God is doing today. I'm to be an active participant rather than a passive bystander when it comes to the work that God's doing today. He wants to save us from and save us to, and he wants us to bring other people along for that salvation as well. Understand your identity, your place value, your role for God. Going back to that summary sentence, God reveals himself as a holy, uh, reveals himself as holy, meaning he is infinitely separate from us, yet he also reveals himself as compassionate, meaning he's eternally connected to us, making it our responsibility to obey him and to trust him. Let's go back to that idea of shoes and the shoes being taken off for our application. Number one, we need to take our shoes off to both revere and rest in the revelation of who God is. Now, if you've ever been to somebody's house, there would be two reasons why you might would take your shoes off there. One, because you get there and you're like, this house is nice, right? My shoes need to be taken off out of respect for this person and their house, right? There's other people's house that you go to, you're like, I feel super comfortable here. I can take my shoes off, right? I love having my shoes off. Um, I take my shoes off frequently when I'm working. Um, They're under the table, slip them off. I'm working, emailing. like to have my shoes off, way more comfortable. Somebody walks in, I immediately feel like I got to put my shoes back on, right? Like, hey, I'm not so comfortable in my job that I take my shoes off, right? So I, I try to put my shoes right back on. There's two different reasons we take our shoes off, right? There's this reverence and respect. Hey, your house is too nice. Now I'll tell you, Um, I always feel like I should probably tell my kids to take their shoes off when they come to your house because, yeah, like, I don't want to mess your house up. Everybody's house here, right? Um, But then there's also places where I'm going to take my shoes off because, man, I'm just super comfortable, right? Like, I, I feel like I can relax. I think God expects or gives us opportunity for both. There is a perspective where we take our shoes off in the presence of God because there is a holiness and a respect and a, and, a, and, a, and a care for who he is, right? For our youth, man, it, it can be so tempting to minimize who God is and to, to downplay his holiness in the ways that we live and the ways that we carry out our life. Man, don't lose sight of the fact that he is a holy God. He is a holy God that demands our respect. But he's also the type of God that we can be comfortable with and rest in. We can rest in him. We can be comfortable with him because he's made a way for that comfort. Jesus has paved the way for us to come close to him. We can rest in him. But then number two, we need to put our shoes on and be ready and responsive to serving God with how he has prepared us. All of us have a different way for serving him, different gifts, different abilities. We need to find those ways and do it. This this passage should have stopped right here. God says, Moses, let's go. We're going to go get him. And and he should have gotten his shoes back on and gone. What we're going to see next week is a conversation ensues because Moses is resistant. We don't need to be resistant. The holy God is the God that we obey, right? We put our shoes back on and we get to work for him. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We praise you and thank you for choosing to reveal yourself to us. We thank you that you are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We are thankful that you give that statement meaning by including us in that community. Jesus came not to save Jews only. Jesus came to save people from the whole world, which was always part of your plan. You called Abraham to be a blessing to all nations. 
He is a blessing to all nations because Jesus is that blessing. God, we thank you that we are included in your covenant community where we enjoy the promises and the provisions that you make for your people. God, help us to rest in that today, to trust you in that. As we go about the daily plotting, Lord, help us to to be faithful because we know that you're good. But Lord, help us to revere you and respect you. Help us not to lose sight of the fact that we are standing on holy ground before you. That you are our friend, but you are our creator. And there is an aboveness that you still possess. Lord, help us not to lose sight of that. Lord, help your holiness to drive us to obey you because you are different from us. Lord, help us to be willing to serve you with whatever ways you call us to. Lord, help our youth, our kids, to say yes to you early in life, to resist the the, the appeals of this world, to resist Egypt as Moses did, to say yes to you and your promises. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.